I'll be uh, reading from Revelation 5, uh, 1 through 10. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, of a, uh, the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each, uh, having each one a harp and a, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase... For, uh, Dispurchase for God thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they, uh, they will reign upon the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this, this uh, passage, Father. Father, we uh, just want to uh, ask you to be with us uh, this uh, morning as we uh, listen to Brandon. Father, speak to us. Father, help us to to hear with our ears, Father, and to apply things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Growing up in church, I was a part of many interesting productions. One that stands out was a a Christmas production in which we as 10-year-old boys were sitting around the campfire. We were cast as shepherds, and our student minister, Troy, was cast as the angel Gabriel. And as we sat there around the campfire, Troy came out, and his instructions were to say, Hark, at which point we would fall off of our seats by the campfire and uh, be in amazement and wonder. And then uh, Troy would announce the coming of the Savior by reading note cards uh, that had his lines on them. Uh, This was by no means uh, a Broadway-style production, Um, but neither was it supposed to be, right? It was, uh, in reality, the the church that we were part of, the small Southern Baptist church in rural Alabama, did not have the resources or time or energy to put on a Broadway-style production, so we did the best that we could with what we had. In reality, the church itself is finite, right, in time, in resources, in ability, in people to accomplish everything that everyone would want it to be. And so, kind of to solve this, in our consumerist age, many uh, church marketing gurus will advise you to really find your niche, right? Find the one thing that you're really good at. Find the one thing that you're going to do as a church that's going to be better than everyone else. This has led many churches to seek to be the young church or the traditional church or the arch church or the vulnerable church. Or maybe you've heard one of these two, either the, the doctrine church 
or the missions church. And these are the identities that we try to put on ourselves to say, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it really well. And we might do the other stuff too, but we probably won't do it as well as we do this thing. Now, obviously, as a church, I think we can all agree that we're supposed to be both, right? Especially in those two, the doctrine church, the cross church, and the missions church. But the question that immediately comes to mind, obviously in our, in our minds we know we're supposed to do both, but which one should get more time? Again, we are finite in resources, time, energy. Which one should we pay more attention to? Or should it be a 50-50 split? And should we constantly try to keep a balance between doctrine and missions? And sometimes we might care too much about missions. We need to come back and pay more attention to doctrine. right? And then sometimes we might be drifting off to pay too much attention to doctrine. We need to come back to the middle and pay more attention to mission. Which one of these is it? Or is it maybe 60-40, 65-35? These are not theoretical questions. These are questions that go to the root of how we are going to be faithful to God's call on us. And to make it a little more personal, are you going to be the doctrine Christian or the missions Christian? How much time are you going to allocate to both of those things? Are you going to sink deeply into the realities of the cross, of the atonement, meditate on God's attributes and his goodness? Or are you going to get about the work that he's given you to do. And again, if you say both, how much time are we going to spend on each? Revelation 5 has some answers for us, I think, both as a church and as individuals in how we find uh, a, a, a... I'm going to use the word balance, and I'm going to criticize it later, but a, a balance there. But before we can get to any of that, first we need to understand what's going on. And so in Revelation chapter 5, we're coming off of, in the first three chapters, first Jesus' address to the churches and his address of their faithfulness and his exhortation for them, both to put away certain sins and to take on certain acts of faithfulness. And then in chapter 4, John has just seen and been introduced to the throne room of God. He's beheld Almighty God, or at least a vision of Almighty God. You see this clearly in verse 6. Around the throne, it sounds like the passage in Isaiah 6, right? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, in Revelation 4, verse 6, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And then they break out into song in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So you can imagine John is in awe at this point as he is getting a vision of the Almighty Creator, his God. And as he stands there in the throne room, the action then unfolds, as we just heard in Revelation chapter 5, and he goes from awe, did you catch it, to sorrow. He goes from wonder to to weeping. Why is this? So you see in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals? Before we can get an answer to why John is distraught, we have to understand what's going on in the scroll. What is this scroll? Um, The short answer is it could be a lot of things. Um, The longer answer is, you ready? Here we go. The longer answer is, um, it is, God's sovereign plans for the future. Okay, the reason I say this is there a lot of people would point us back to passages in Ezekiel and Daniel about what this scroll is and kind of get in the minutiae of what it might contain. I don't think that's John's point here. 
So I want to stick in Revelation to see what exactly he means by the scroll. And I think in order to see it, all we have to do is look one chapter ahead in chapter 6, verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. These are the seals that have kept the scroll shut, right? And he opens one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. What is happening here? When he opens the scroll, judgment comes. Christ is coming to conquer. When he opens the scroll, history continues. So what is in this scroll are the plans and decrees of Almighty God. It is history that God has written and that is going to take place. But there's some tension happening in Revelation chapter 5. God's plans, it seems, for this very moment in this vision cannot continue without someone worthy to keep it going, without someone worthy to open up the unfolding events. You see, God has, has planned and executes history. He is sovereign in every way imaginable. Our lives, your life, my life is written in the hands of Almighty God. And yet, the problem that John is witnessing here is that without a conqueror, without someone to put away sin and death, without someone worthy to open up the plans for your and I's future, the plans are not going to go well. The plans that would open up, that are not in God's decree, but the plans that otherwise would open up are tragic. They are judgment reaped on us for our sin. They are death put on us. You see, our John's future, apart from someone worthy to open the scroll, is not a hopeful future. John's future, apart from the lion lamb, is a future filled with sorrow. See, there's a great problem that as the Lord surveys the throne room and he sees the angels and he sees the elders and he looks out and sees the saints of old, he sees Moses and he sees David and he sees Abraham. He looks on all of these wonderful people, but no one is worthy to take up the scroll and unfold the coming events to get us to the eschaton, the last days, the judgment of God and the conquering of sin and death. No one is worthy to usher in the end. And so when no one is found, John Weeps. Perhaps you know a little bit of what John's feeling here. That as you look out into the world, and all you can really see is, is hopelessness. As you look out into the world, and all you can see is pain and sorrow and sickness. All you can see is corruption and injustice. And you look at the world, and your response is, like John's, right. You weep. We all weep. With John, as we look into the world and the brokenness of the world and the pain and the hurt and the sin in our own hearts, much less in the world around us. And I agree with the words of W.A. Criswell as he says, These are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people. As they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience the trials and the sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. That usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan, the devil. And I wept audibly. For the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth, in its curse, is consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever. And the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of of Satan. 
You see, if the scroll is not open, the Bible's promises do not come true and hope is defeated. And so as we look out on the world with John and see in front of us, in front of our eyes, the hopelessness of sin, the defeat of good, the darkness that seems to snuff out the light, we too listen to the words of the elder and his advice to John. Because the elder's advice to John is not get a grip and put a good face on it and hope for the best. What was the elder's advice to John? Look with me in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold. The elder's advice to John is to behold, to look, to look in a different direction. So let's behold together. What does the elder tell him to behold? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. David. Those are unusual titles, but John is hoping and God is hoping through John to show us something about this lion through these titles. So we need to look uh, shortly at a couple of places in Scripture that give us, they kind of unpack what he means when he calls him the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. So look with me at Genesis 49, first of all. Genesis 49, this is where we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. What in the world does that mean? You've probably heard this before. Maybe you've even read this passage before. I just want to call your attention to a few things that I think John is wanting to show us here. In verse 9, this is... Uh, Jacob, right, Israel, giving his sons various blessings. And he's blessing his sons and and prophesying over his sons uh, to give them both blessings and even a little bit of curses in a couple of places, depending on who they are. Um, But in verse 9, he gets to his son, Judah, and he says, Judah is a lion's cub. Did you hear that? Lion? From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter is a, a royal instrument, right? Only the king has a scepter. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what we see just in a brief glimpse is this prophecy of Israel that from Judah, the scepter will not depart. In other words, there will be a kingly line that continues on through the tribe of Judah. And not only that, but not any old king, but a global king. There's a king that's not just going to be king of one nation or one people, but do you see? To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, all the ethnicities, right? All the nations. To him shall be the obedience of all of them. So we get a glimpse of a global king, one who can take on the role not just of the king of our personal lives or the king of our favorite group of people, but the king of the cosmos. Also, we see the root of David. So turn with me to Jeremiah 23. What does he mean when he says the root of David? We know that David was a king, so it has something to do with royalty. Jeremiah 23, 5 gives us a little bit more information. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, the prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah is affirming that plan that God gave to the tribe of Judah and ultimately to the peoples of the world. That through him, you see Judah was David's great, 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 great grandfather. 
through him, through Judah and now through David, there will come a new king who, unlike David, won't fail and unlike David, won't die. But through him, he will execute righteousness. In other words, not wickedness. He won't foster more wickedness in the land, but instead he will restore the land to its identic state, what it was always intended to be, righteousness, goodness, justice. And he will reign as king. The point of the tribe of Judah and the root of David is that we are to see this lion lamb standing up and he is the king. He is the ruler. There is no one else who's able to take the scroll, but this lion lamb is not afraid to get up and walk to the throne of God and take up the decrees of God. You see, here we see that Jesus has taken control of history. The Savior in Revelation 5 is not needy and nervous. He's not hoping that people will like him or approve of him. He is audacious and bold and sure. Ultimately, he is worthy. A.W. Tozer said almost 80 years ago now that 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. Probably the hardest thought for all of us in our natural egotism is to entertain that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as busy, eager, and somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and that his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. What Tozer says there is, we do not go about the mission of God in order to rescue God from embarrassment. We do not go about the mission of God because we feel bad for Jesus. We go about the mission of God because we see the lion taking up the scroll. We see who he is and we follow him. This is the lion who, as Colossians 2.15 tells us, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, like John this morning, some of you need to see the lion in this passage. Your Christian life is defeatist. You say, well, this is... Just who I am. I can't win that war against sin. God couldn't use me. He uses those special people that aren't like me and don't have my problems for his glory and his mission. And what God calls you to see, like he called John to see, is that Jesus is not in the business of taking strong people and making them better. Jesus is in the business of taking weak people and using them for his glory. Jesus is a lion. He has conquered, triumphed, and humiliated the enemy. And if you are a Christian, you are on his side. Many of us acknowledge Jesus as king and treat him as a lame duck king. Yeah, he's king, but he doesn't have a whole lot of power. But the picture of Jesus here is not a duck. It's a lion. And I love, as it continues, the paradox in verse 6. So you just picture, all right, the lion, he's going to take the scroll, right? All right, we've got somebody. John stops weeping and he looks up and he's ready to see this grand and glorious lion who'd be worthy to take the scroll from God and execute God's decrees throughout history. Nobody else is standing up. So this lion must be pretty amazing. And he looks up to see the lion and what does he see? Between the, four throne, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So you picture he's expecting a lion with a mane, like he's expecting Mufasa, right, with a really deep James Earl Jones voice. And he sees a sheep, not just any sheep, but basically a baby sheep, right, a a little bitty ewe. And not only does he see a sheep, but the sheep is, apparently it looks like he's been slain, probably covered in blood. 
So he's expecting this big, majestic lion to come and take the scroll, and instead he sees what looks like, probably not small, but certainly weak. Not what he was expecting. You see, if I told you to look over here for a lion and you saw a lamb, you'd probably laugh. It's almost a joke to expect to see something so bold and audacious as Aslan, a lion, and instead to hear a bleeding lamb. But you notice the adjective that he uses for the lamb. It's not an adjective, but uh, I saw a lamb standing saw a lamb standing. You see, lambs don't usually stand, especially slaughtered lambs. Slaughtered lambs are usually belly up. But this lamb looks as though he's been slaughtered, and yet he's standing. You see, this lamb, again, John is calling us to look back and to hear some echoes of the story that God has been writing through all of history. He's wanting us to hear in this lamb, Genesis 22, when Abraham, you remember the story, when Abraham is called to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. He walks up the mountain, he gets the wood, he tells his son to follow him. And his son looks around and sees a a knife in his father's hand and wood on his father's back. He sees the altar at the top of the hill. And he says, you know, we're kind of missing one piece of this puzzle, pops. Where's Where's the lamb? You remember what Abraham looks at him in the eyes? I imagine Abraham as a father is just gritting his teeth at this point, hoping and praying that what he's saying is going to be true. And he utters these words, God will provide for himself a lamb. He's wanting us to think of Exodus twelve thirteen when the Israelites are bound in captivity and slavery. And God's executed these plagues, these majestic plagues, frogs and gnats and everything else. And God's shown his mighty work and yet the people are still in slavery. Pharaoh said no. God has shown how powerful he is. He's shown glimpses of his glory to his people. And they've gotten to behold in a small way how strong God is. And yet they're still building bricks. They're still enduring the lash until the night when God tells them to take a lamb. In Exodus twelve thirteen, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And as death and destruction wreaked havoc on Egypt and the firstborn sons were taken away, God passed over those Israelites who had the blood of the Lamb on their door. He's wanting us to think of Isaiah 53 as Isaiah is picking up this language and is pointing us to the future Messiah when he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. And he's pointing us back to his own gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 29, when he says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, Jesus the King, Jesus the Lion has become a Lamb for you and for me. He took his kingship and emptied himself and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men in order to give you and me redemption and freedom in the same way that the Passover lamb gave the Israelites redemption and freedom. What this means is that your story, according to Jesus, is not over yet. 
You see, do not listen to the enemy when he whispers in your ear that the temptations of the world are better or that the groanings of this world are all that there is. And this is the end of the story. God has provided the lamb and the lamb is not lying down. He is standing. You see, Jesus brings victory through death. On the darkest day in human history, Jesus shined a light. The king became a servant. The eternal one dwelt with us. The author of life took on death, and he is worthy of your life and trust. Have you given it to him? Are you following him? Does he hold your story in the palm of his hand? Are you continually trying to wrest it from him? Continually trying to go your own way and write your own story. Friend, today you can trust in the Lord Jesus. He brings beauty out of darkness. He brings victory out of death. And this victory is not just for you and for me and us sitting in this room. We see as we continue in this passage that this victory is for the entire globe This victory is not limited to just a few from one place or one time. This victory is for all places. You see in uh, verse 9, you continue. He says, well, let's start in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the first thing we see here is that as we, or I'm sorry, we reach our neighbor and the nations because he is worthy of glory. We reach our neighbor and the nations because he is worthy of glory. You see, missions, going to the nations is not simply because... We feel bad for them. It's not even, it is for this, but it's not even to keep them from spending an eternity in judgment and hell. Missions, ultimately, the reason we go to our neighbor and to the nations is not for guilt, but for glory. John Piper says it well. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. See, we go, we tell, we preach, we send, we give. We lay down our lives in courage, not so that we can feel less bad or so that we can do something good, but ultimately because God's glory is at stake. The lion lamb deserves the worship of the peoples. He has called us and redeemed us. And he has given us the task. So you say, well, I still don't really understand why peoples, why not just a lot of people, right? There's like millions of people in Dallas that still haven't heard the gospel. We should just key in on them. I mean, not worry about all the other stuff. We have one specific place that we're called to. And you're partly right. Absolutely. We are called here to this area. But let me just give you a picture of why peoples our, our, our greater glory. Obviously, it's because God says it, first of all. But I think maybe this will help. And usually, um, when I give an example, I think of hot dogs. So, um, I'm going to think of hot dogs here. I'm just kidding. I was, I was reading a, uh, a, an article in the Washington Post 
that was about hot dogs, specifically hot dogs. Hot Dugs is a hot dog joint in Chicago, or at least it was until 2008 when they announced that they were closing their doors. That they, On their last day, uh, they were going to serve hot dogs, and uh, then no more hot dogs for all of the hot dogs aficionados. On this day uh, in 2008 that they announced was going to be their last day, I was struck not by the amount of people, although there were hundreds that came on that day to get their final taste of a hot dog's hot dog, Instead, I was struck by this line. He says, folks are getting in line as early as nine hours before hot dogs even opens. Because you have to get there more than three hours before it opens in order to get in at all. Fans are also, hear this, making impromptu middle-of-the-night road trips from as far as Toronto and Washington for a hot dog. Some just hopping in their cars following flight cancellations. Can you imagine buying a plane ticket to eat a hot dog, finding out the plane ticket is canceled, and then getting in your car and driving to eat said hot dog? That's incredible. That is some passion for a hot dog. Now, the question I would put before you is, what would you be more impressed with, or maybe even better, what hot dog joint would you want to try? The one that on their last day announced that they were closing... And 100 people from that neighborhood showed up for that hot dog, which is pretty impressive. means they had a following, right? Or one that announced their closing and people from nations bought plane tickets in order to go there, hundreds of people, to eat said hot dog. What is more impressive? What gives more glory to hot dogs? Well, of course. What is it? It's the one from... All people, right? It's not just these little people in their neighborhood that just so happen to like a hot dog. This hot dog was so good that it spans cultures and even nations in Toronto, right? Everywhere. People wanted this hot dog so badly that they came to receive it there. You see, there is more glory in more peoples, in the diversity of God's creation and redemption, than even there is in simply more people. So as we're looking at the Great Commission, which says, go to all the nations, what does that mean? What does that mean, go to all the nations? I'm not going to get super technical here, but most of the time when we think of nations, right, we think of countries. And so, like, we send a missionary to India, right, and now India is reached, right? Okay, missionary, India, check, Great Commission accomplished. All right, now we've got to move on to China, right? We send a missionary to China, and then check, China's reached. All right, we've got a couple more nations to go. But the word there, nations, is not nation-states, right? They didn't have those in the New Testament. What they had were people groups, families, tribes. And so the word there, go to the nations, is go to the peoples. Go to those who are comprised of one language, one culture, one what we would mostly call ethnicities, Right? So Joshua Project, which is a resource that we, they estimate how many people groups there might be in the world based on those kinds of things. They define people group as the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance, primarily language, cultural understanding, these kinds of things, right? Based on that definition, they estimate, again, we don't have the biblical category, we're just estimating, they estimate that there are about 17,000 people groups in the world today. Of those, as we seek to categorize them, there are about 7,000 that are unreached. And by unreached, we mean that there is not a church planning movement capable of reaching that nation. In other words, they usually use the figure about 2%. If there are under 2% 
of people that are uh, evangelical Christians in that nation. They're not capable of planting churches, starting churches, and reaching out to their neighbors in any really sustainable, tangible way. Of those, 300 are unreached and unengaged, which means that we know of no single person who is a believing Christian in that people group. It means that unless someone goes, they will be born and live and die without an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is tragic for them, but it's also, it also mars the glory of God. So you put both of those things together. The fact that there are people who are born and live and die without the opportunity to even hear the gospel of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus, in his death, died for people from every tribe and language and nation. You see, brothers and sisters, if we are content to leave unreached people unreached, we've missed the point of the atonement. It's not just that we've missed the point of the Great Commission. If we are willing to leave unreached people unreached, we've missed the point of the atonement of Jesus. They are intrinsically connected. But there is hope. Number two, we reach our neighbor and the nations because his blood has bought a people. Because his blood has bought a people. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus tells us, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says, I have raised up the harvest. He says in, the elders say in verse 9, Your blood has ransomed, has already bought. There are people who are bought in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They merely need someone to share the gospel with them. You see, we don't go for the hope of a harvest. We don't go hoping that there might be people there who would believe in and trust in Jesus. We go with the assurance from Jesus himself that there are people there that as we labor, as we share, as we send, as we go, people will believe and trust in Jesus. They will sing this song beside us in eternity. It's like Black Friday. You Black Friday people are nuts. Why anyone would camp out in front of Kohl's, sorry to you who shop at Kohl's, in order for the, let me go, let me use another one. Why would you camp out in front of Best Buy for the chance? You know, they say, okay, we're giving away five free TVs. So the first five people who manage not to get trampled and die, um, come, come hang out for like two days in a, camp, in a little tent, um, you know, eat some MREs and enjoy your time for this chance at a TV I'm going, heck no, man. I'm not going. What if, I, what if I'm the sixth person? Like there's two other psychos who get there three days early, and they beat me to the punch, and then all I am is trampled with no TV. No, I'm not going for a chance at a TV. But if you tell me, all right, Best Buy's running a sale. They have unlimited TVs. If you show up at 5 a.m., they will guarantee you a 65-inch 4K HD, I haven't thought about this at all, television, <laughs> Vizio, for 150 bucks. If you show up at 5 a.m., I'm setting the alarm for 4. I'm setting another alarm for 4.15. I'm getting in the car, and I'm going to be there at 5 a.m., right? Because you're guaranteeing me a TV. You see how this motivates us? You see how the atonement drives us to the nations? There are people that Jesus has bought. This is greatly encouraging to living on mission here as well. There are people in your family. There are people in your workplace. There are people in your neighborhood that Jesus has ransomed. 
And they need only you to share the gospel with them that they might trust and believe in the name of Jesus. And yet, the reality is that there are more Christians in Ovilla than among the 136 million Sheik people in Bangladesh. You see, yes, our work starts here. Our work is here. But part of our work, in order to be faithful to this call, must be there. Our work can't stop here. There are neighbors and family members who need the gospel. We must be faithful to our call. And yet, if we ignore the nations that Jesus has redeemed in which there, are, there is no gospel presence, we are missing the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. One practical way that you can exercise this is, is simply where do your prayers most often go? Many of you have shared with me that you wake up in the middle of the night. Apparently this happens as you get older from what I hear. I don't know what that's like. I go to sleep and it's like I get my five hours, but they are solid five hours, right? Um, but apparently as you get older, you wake up more. Um, and I had a pastor once who shared this with me that he had, this had happened. Um, he had gotten older and he began to wake up throughout the night and he had a hard time going back to sleep. Many of us count sheep as we wake up and have a hard time going back to sleep. Uh, this pastor had a great idea. He uh, had a map next to his bed. And he would simply pray for people groups. And he said, you'd be surprised how the enemy works. I usually fall asleep pretty quick once I start praying for, for people groups. But what a great use of redeeming the time. right? Instead of counting sheep, instead of kind of going through our normal prayer list, although we, we can, right, and we should, but instead of simply rehearsing the normal prayer list of our various ailments and, and needs, moving instead to praying for specific peoples. Praying for God to work in and send to specific people who are lost and unreached with the gospel. Charles Spurgeon says, The motive is this, that God could be glorified, that Jesus might see the reward of his sufferings. Oh, that sinners might be saved, so that God might have new tongues to praise him and new hearts to love him. Oh, that sin were put to an end, that the holiness, righteousness, mercy, and power of God might be magnified. This is the way to pray. When thy prayers seek God's glory, it is God's glory to answer thy prayers. And we pray for the nations. Thirdly, we reach our neighbor in the nations because these people have a job. Because these people have a job. Romans 10, verses 12 through 15 tell us there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The name of the Lord is the Lord of all. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, God could use the rocks to cry out, but he uses us. He could write his name and the gospel in the clouds, and yet he has assigned us the task to take the gospel to the nations. They cannot respond to what they have not heard. And the only way, Paul tells us, for them to hear is from those who have already believed. But here's the beauty. As they hear and believe, they go from need-to-hear category into believe category, which therefore are new preachers and new tellers. So do you see the circle that happens here? As people are reached for the gospel, both in our neighborhood and in the nations, they go from category need-to-hear to category preacher. And the ratio expands. And so we have new people to send and go. This has happened in, in South America. Many years ago, we sent missionaries to South America. And many South Americans now believe the gospel. And many churches in South America, quite frankly, are healthier than most of our churches. And now they are sending missionaries to the nations. And so while the church in 
North America is in many ways falling short of God's call. Not fully, but in many ways. The church in South America is taking it up. Do you see how God works? Same is true for Africa. There's faith, there are faithful believers all over the globe. And as we continue to send and go, that will continue to be true. God is, I'm sorry, evangelism is not optional in the Christian life. It is fundamental. And God in his great mercy is bringing the nations to us. Isn't this incredible? He told us to go to the nations, and we've, we've sought to do that with varying levels of faithfulness. And yet, in his mercy, he's chosen to bring the nations to our back door. Brothers and sisters, immigration policy is far above my pay grade. But what I do know is that I hope we are not so busy wringing our hands over border policy for the city of man that we fail to invite them to our table and bear witness to the city of God. What, what we do with them when they are here is not the primary question for the church of Jesus Christ. The primary question for the church of Jesus Christ is how we are going to reach them now that they are here. We can worry about the other thing secondarily. As there are people who move into our neighborhood and in our backyard who have yet to hear the gospel and who will not hear the gospel if they go back home to an unengaged people group, may we not be so concerned with what to do with them politically that we forget to go to them and share the gospel of Jesus with them. And we have many nations around our table. And the reason we want this, the reason we crave this, is because God has given them a job. Do you see their job in verse 10? You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What is the job of a priest? The job of the priest is to facilitate worship. The work of a priest is to facilitate worship both for himself and for others. You see this clearly in Isaiah 66. I love Isaiah 66. As a matter of fact, I wasn't going to, but I'm going to turn there. Isaiah 66, verse 20. Isaiah 66, 20. It's almost as good as Habakkuk 2.14. Do you know Habakkuk 2.14? I don't either. That's why I'm looking for it. We may turn there too. We'll see. Isaiah 66, verse 20. God says, and again, this is God looking forward, sharing something with Isaiah of the final judgment. And in verse 20, he says, They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, and horses, and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules, my holy, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them, he says, I will also take as priests and for Levites. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. He says, I'm calling them out to be priests because there are going to be so many who worship me We're going to need help. The job of a priest is to facilitate worship. As we go to the nations, he will make them kingdoms and priests. And they will in turn make new nations and new peoples kingdoms and priests. You see, we do not go and sin to feel less guilty with God, but to give more glory to God. The cross and the mission are not in competition for your attention. The solution is not a 50-50 split or to keep things in some imaginary sense of balance. The cross is the meaning 
of the mission. So unapologetically delve deep into beholding the Lamb and knowing God. And the mission is the meaning of the cross. So unapologetically lay down your all on behalf of the unreached. Perhaps this morning you've fallen so in love with the idea of mission and sacrifice and and adventure that you've forgotten who the mission is for. You've forgotten that at the end of your sights is not the mission, is not adventure, but is the Lion Lamb of God who has taken away your sins and the sins of the world. More likely, God is moving in your spirit to call you to greater engagement with what He is doing both here and around the globe. Perhaps you've never been passionate about God's mission because you've never seen Jesus as your lion lamb. You've never seen and encountered and trusted this Jesus who holds in his hands your future. You've never entrusted to him your life. You've never followed him in faithfulness, begun to share him with others. Instead, maybe you've come to church and and done the right rehearsals. But you don't know what it is to have the lion lamb as Lord of your life. You can find forgiveness. and You can find hope for your future today. Perhaps you've been faithful in in many other areas of your Christian life. But this has always been a blind spot. And the Lord in his grace is leading you to conviction and repentance. And further engagement with what he is doing as the lion lamb. Redeeming peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So I want to give you... In closing, a couple of ways to respond today. First, I've already said it, you can pray. Um, One way you can pray, we have this resource. um, This is Pray the World. We have it in the bookstore if you want it there. You can buy it on Amazon or Lifeway's not in existence anymore, but find a Christian bookstore that maybe is still open. Um, And uh, and you can find this. This is Pray the World. This is also known, the bigger version is Operation World. But in here, you've got about, um, you've got every people group, or I'm sorry, not every people group, every nation. So this is nation states. But they have specific people groups in that nation. And what they give you are just a few ways both to pray for that nation, very short and simple and compact ways that you can pray, and also just some geographic and uh, socioeconomic information about that nation so that if you've ever tried to pray for the nations and you start and you go to, like, China, right? You're like, okay, I want to pray for China, God, that they'll believe, right? Well, this helps you find some more information about China and specific ways that you can pray for the missionaries there, the church there, the believers there, and the, and the culture at large. So it's a great resource. I'd encourage it to you if you have trouble praying for the nations in that way. Um, another way you can do that is to commit to pray every day for one of our missionaries at our church. If you'd like a list of those, you can either um, email uh, our, our secretary, Alice, or just ask Mike, um, and he can get that to you, Mike Talley, our missions director. Um, but just commit to pray for a missionary every day. And maybe check in on them. Send them an email. Um, ask how they're doing. Ask how you can pray. Ask about their family. Another way you can do is, is give. So we can pray. We can give. Uh, you can uh, honestly, and, and this is not a, a self-plug, take it as you will, uh, but your tithe here goes directly to missions. I think 13%, if I remember correctly, of our um, general offerings is designated specifically to global mission, not to mention the part of our uh, budget and resources that goes to local mission in our neighborhoods, right? Reaching peoples. That is the mission of the church. So the primary way that we support the mission of God is to support the church. And yet there are hundreds, thousands of faithful organizations that also reach out to the nations. 
Um, we are no longer part of a, a Southern Baptist church. My family and I take great joy in giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering each week, which goes directly to every dollar goes to um, reaching people for the sake of Jesus. You can go. Uh, Mike has presented to us uh, some E3 trips next year. Uh, you can talk to him about those. Those are great opportunities to get to see and understand a little bit better how God is working among the nations. They give you more specific ways to pray and uh, and kindle a passion in you for what God is doing. Um, Perhaps God is calling you to a full-time mission service. You're stirred. You're not really sure what that looks like, uh, but you're interested. You can come and talk to a pastor today about what it looks like to serve Jesus, um, either overseas or in another context that's unfamiliar to you. But lastly, that's not where I want to end. Um, there's a beautiful song by Andrew Peterson that is based off of this verse. And um, while I, would, I want to give you some action steps, some tangible ways to go about um, obeying these verses, right? We don't want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. And yet that's not John's primary advice here, is it? John's primary advice here is that one word, or the elder's advice to John that he took, was behold. So I'm just going to read these. Um, and then we'll move into a time of, of worship and, and beholding Jesus. Peterson writes, Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? He is. Amen.